You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on August 11th, 2019. A reading from the letter to the Hebrews. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place that he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, over the last few weeks we've experienced some terrible events. Two weeks ago, a gunman shooting in California at a garlic festival, and then just last weekend, two shootings, one in El Paso and one in Dayton, Ohio. And it's hard sometimes to find rhyme or reason behind an event such as that. In the reports, uh, it seems that the, the shooter in California and the shooter in Dayton uh, had no discernible motivation that we can come up with no ideology that would convict them to to do the terrible things that they did. But in the El Paso shooting, we do have a motive. A gunman stormed into a Walmart and fired last Saturday, apparently targeting Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, having written a manifesto sounding an alarm over what he called an invasion of Hispanics, according to the authorities. And we now know that 22 people were killed in that violence. And so this makes us uh, question why people commit themselves to do such terrible things. Why do people go into a Walmart and shoot? Why do people go to a garlic festival or to a bar and shoot? What would drive them to do such things? Well, the issue is complicated, and there's lots of things that complicate it. And it's hard to solve all of those problems in one sermon. I wish I could. But one thing I think we can address is this issue of nationalism versus patriotism, which seems to be a driving motivation for the man in El Paso. And so let's consider for a moment the difference between patriotism, which I think is a good thing, and nationalism, which is not such a good thing. Sometimes they're synonyms and mean almost the same thing. But there's something about nationalism that causes it to diverge and go in some dangerous directions. So first of all, patriotism. 
Patriotism is the love and affection one feels for his country based on the values a country espouses and the way it strives to improve. So in the context of our own nation, we could look at values such as freedom, such as human rights, such as dignity afforded to people. These are things that our nation has set up since its inception as values for our country. And they're good things. They're even scriptural things that we can look at and say these are the the ways that governments should govern their people. Nationalism is also love and affection for one's country, but it takes a a different uh, point of divergence from there. Nationalism is rooted in the belief that one's country is superior to all others and carries the connotation of disapproval of other nations or rivalry with other nations, building up one's own country by tearing down other countries. Nationalism supports dominating other countries. And the difference, and I think the danger, between nationalism and patriotism is that while patriotism seeks to have love and affection for one's country and to help the country to improve and to promote its values, nationalism makes an idol out of one's nation to the point where we're willing to trample on others and beat others down when they don't agree with us. Globally, this can look like one nation refusing to cooperate with others and making decisions that are only good for them and which may even cause harm to others. But within our nation, it can give rise to movements like white nationalism, which this El Paso shooter seems to have been participating in, which takes not just the nation itself, but a particular segment of the nation and lifts that up as the ideal for the whole nation to the point where they're willing to commit acts of violence to promote their ideas and agenda. This is truly a dangerous thing. Our scripture passages today can help us get pointed in the right direction as we consider the nations of the world and our own attitude toward our own nation. And so we'll begin in Psalm 33, which was the the lectionary appointed for this morning. And in Psalm 33, the first verse we read and the second verse were verses 10 and 11. If you look at them in your bulletins, We'll use the prayer book translation for this. It says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to naught. He makes the devices of the peoples to be of no effect and casts out the counsel of princes. The counsel of the Lord shall endure forever and the thoughts of his heart from generation to generation. So here we see a a contrast between two forms of counsel. The first is the council of the nations, and the second is the council of God. And the council of the nations, it says, will come to naught, will come to nothing, because it's the council of man. It's, it's man in his sinfulness and his ignorance, pooling that ignorance and coming up with what he thinks is good ideas. The council of God, on the other hand, shall endure forever, and the thoughts of his heart from generation to generation. Nations rise and fall. People have great ideas, and the great ideas are terrible ideas the next day. But the Lord's wisdom, the Lord's counsel, endures forever. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the guidance of the Lord is steadfast. It's trustworthy. And it doesn't matter which generation you're a part of, whether it was from 200 years ago, or 50 years ago, or the generation that's coming 50 years from now. The counsel of the Lord is still steadfast and still endures forever. 
John Goldengay, who's an Old Testament scholar, uh, says this about this particular passage of the Psalms. He says, when the Old Testament speaks of the nations, it often refers to the imperial power of the day, the superpower, like Assyria or Babylon or Persia or Greece. And it can seem that the superpower's policies are the decisive factor in the world. But the Psalm knows that Yahweh's policy is actually the decisive factor. So the the psalmist, when he was writing this, was probably thinking when he thought of the nations, of the the nations that were in power at the time, the big superpowers that were conquering the nations around them, putting even Israel itself in danger. And the psalmist looks at those superpowers and says, as mighty as they are, their counsel will come to naught. And that was true of every single one of those empires. The empire of Babylon, the empire of Assyria, the empire of Greece, each one of them had their day, each one of them rose to power, and each one of them was defeated and fell at some point. Their ideas, their ideologies came to naught. But the assurance of the psalmist is that the counsel of the Lord shall last forever. His is the policy that makes the most difference. His is the policy that over time wins out over and over and over again because the Lord stands forever. And then we get to verse 12. It says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Some have misquoted this verse to apply it to our own nation. In other words, if America would just choose God, God would bless our nation again. If America would just choose God, God would bless our nation again. And certainly I have no trouble with the idea of revival in America. That would be a wonderful and blessed thing if it were to happen. If more and more people would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and would bow their knee to him and bend their ideas to him and follow in his ways, that would be perhaps the best thing that could happen to our country. But it's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is not talking about any nation that chooses God, In fact, it's not talking about the choices that people make at all. It's talking about the particular nation that God has chosen for himself, which was Israel. So we can look at the next half of that verse. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and blessed are the people he has chosen for himself to be his inheritance. The psalmist isn't talking about any nation. The psalmist was a member of the nation that God had chosen for himself the people of God. And blessed is that nation because God has chosen them. It's not about the choices that other nations make. It's about the choice that God made to separate this nation for himself to be a witness to all other nations. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel and the people of God were one and the same. In the Old Testament, when it says the people of God, it is specifically talking about the nation of Israel, the people who descended from Abraham's line. In the New Testament, we get a different understanding. In the New Testament, being part of God's people is no longer by birth, but by faith. And so whether or not you are biologically descended from Abraham now doesn't matter at all. It says in the New Testament, there is now neither Jew nor Greek. Neither Jew nor Greek. Why? Because the Greek the Gentile has been grafted in to the one olive tree of God's people. 
the person who was not naturally born of this family of Abraham now can be a part of that family by the grace of God. Not by the choices that they make, but by the choice that God's make, made to include them. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the thing that made that possible. This is about God's choice. The people God has chosen for himself. And so the people of God today, in the New Testament sense, are all those God has chosen for himself. All those who we could call the elect. All those who are part of the kingdom of God. All those who acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ as king of kings and lord of lords. And so the people God has chosen for himself are now scattered throughout every nation of the world and come from every race. They are all a part of God's kingdom, which is already here, but not yet fully here in all that it's going to be. And so we look into the future, into the book of Revelation, where we see people from every tribe and tongue and people and language and nation, all standing before the throne of God, all worshiping the Lord together. It's not any one of those nations that was the nation that God was blessing. It's all the people from those nations that God is blessing and drawing to himself. And so we have to be careful not to confuse the nation we live in with the kingdom of God. If we believe them to be one and the same, it can lead to nationalism, which can lead to the problems that we talked about earlier. So how should we view our nation? When we look in the book of Hebrews, where we read this morning, this is uh, one of my favorite passages. It's the great hall of, of faith. And it, it talks about all of these different people who had faith in God, who believed in the promises of God, and yet so many of them didn't see the thing that God had promised. They saw God's promise come to fulfillment in small ways, but not in the grand ways, not in the ultimate ways, not in the, the telos end of all things ways. And so it talks about Abraham here, and how Abraham was promised a land, a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And in some ways he did see it. He did see that land. He did pitch his tent in that land, but he didn't get to occupy that land. It wasn't actually his. He was a sojourner in that land. And it wasn't until many generations later that that land became truly the people of Israel's land. Only after their persecution under the Egyptians for 400 years, only after that were they brought out and were they able to occupy the land fully as the people of God in that place. And yet this promised land image points to something that's further off, points to the bigger reality of the kingdom of God, points to the bigger reality of the new heaven and the new earth, which God is renewing for himself. The ultimate fulfillment of the way things ultimately will be when the Lord returns for us. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 14, it says, for people who speak thus, talking about Abraham and Sarah and Enoch and all those people that we heard about this morning, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
The people of faith whom the writer of Hebrews mentions by name were all seeking something beyond themselves. All seeking something which they never saw with their own eyes, but they had faith that God was bringing it about and that that reality would ultimately be true. And we seek the same thing. The world around us is not the way it's supposed to be. And it's not the way that it will be. We long for the day when everything will be set right. In the book of Romans, Paul speaks to this reality, and he talks about the groaning of all of creation. In chapter 8, verses 20 to 23, he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that being the evil one, Satan, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, for the redemption of our bodies. We all know that things aren't right. We look around us and we can see that each and every day. We see the sin of man and we see the sin that lingers in our own hearts, even though we are those who are redeemed. It clings to us so closely. This is not the way it's supposed to be. But we have hope that it won't always be this way. We have hope that one day people won't walk into Walmarts and shoot people up. We have hope, actually, that there won't even be any Walmarts anymore because we're looking forward to the kingdom of God, to something bigger, to something much beyond ourselves. Nothing wrong with Walmart, by the way. I shop there all the time. I just don't want to get shot up there. (laughs) This is all pointing to this greater reality, this greater kingdom of heaven, which is here and not yet here, which has begun and has not yet fully been established. Jesus is king. We can see it in all kinds of ways. But we can also see other ways in which the prince of this world is still having a field day. The values of the kingdom, God's kingdom, will always be at odds with the values of the world. The values of this world come from the prince of this world, Satan. But Jesus is king, and his kingdom is overtaking the kingdom of the evil one bit by bit, day by day, soul by soul, heart by heart. In John chapter 17, Jesus gives us a little picture of what this might look like as he's praying for his disciples. John chapter 17, verses 14 to 19, Jesus says this, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I concentrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying that we are not of the world because we are of him. He has changed us. 
He has altered us by his salvation. He has altered us by putting his Holy Spirit inside of us that we might be the place where he himself dwells and that his church, the body of Christ, might be the place where the Spirit dwells collectively. But then he says he's not praying that the Father would take us out of the world. And in fact, further, he says that he is sending us into the world. Now, in some ways, that would be great if we came to know Jesus and he took us out of the world because then we wouldn't have to experience the suffering of this world anymore. We wouldn't have to experience the darkness and the sin and the death. But that wouldn't achieve God's purposes because God's purpose is not to take his people out of the world, but to transform the world through his people. If God plucked out every new believer each time they came to faith in him, who would be left to preach the gospel to those who don't know him? Nobody. If God plucked out every human heart that was turned towards him, who would be here to do the good things that need to be done in this world? Nobody. God has sent us into the world with a mission and a purpose. His kingdom will fully come. He will one day set all things right. But today, he's beginning to set things right through us, through the things he calls us to do in this world. And in the meantime, he's praying that the Father would keep us from the snatches of the evil one. That the Father would protect us and guide us and guard us so that we might accomplish the things that he has sent us to do. So how do we remain in the world and yet keep ourselves from becoming like it? That's a hard challenge. It's the same challenge every Christian has faced since the beginning of Christianity, right after Jesus died and rose again. How do we remain in the world? How do we influence the world? How do we do the things we've been sent into the world to do and not become stained by the world? I think the writer of the Gospel of John would quote from Jesus where he says, abide in me. We need to abide in Jesus. Each and every day, we need to abide in him by reading his word, by staying close to his heart as we pray, by gathering together with other believers in the fellowship of the church. Those are the three basic disciplines of the Christian faith, the three basic things that keep us in constant connection with him. Reading his word, receiving his sacraments, taking Jesus into ourselves through Holy Communion. Jeremiah gave some interesting instructions from the Lord to the people of Israel living in exile. And I want to point out a passage in Jeremiah chapter 29, if you want to turn there in your pew Bibles. This is Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In its welfare you will find your welfare. 
the people of Israel would never have thought of the place that they were living, Babylon, as being the nation whose God is the Lord. In fact, Babylon to them would have been the antithesis of that, the exact opposite. Babylon was the evil enemy. Babylon was the the nation that was pagan and sought after idols. Babylon was the nation that had taken their people hostage, that had raped, that had murdered, that had done terrible things as they were taking the people of Israel out of their homeland to this foreign place. They would have had hatred in their hearts for the people of Babylon because of the despicable things that had been done. And yet, Jeremiah tells them to seek the welfare of that city. In other words, bloom where you're planted. You might not have chosen to be in Babylon, but it's where you are. And so seek the welfare of that city. Plant gardens, marry and give in marriage, multiply, don't decrease but increase, and seek the welfare of that city, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. When we act as patriots, people who love their country, people who seek the good of their country and seek to improve their country, when we act as patriots, we are loving the place where God has planted us, and we seek its welfare, even as we continue to long for our true homeland. That's how we can seek the welfare of our city. That's how we can seek the welfare of our country. And truly, our welfare will be found in its welfare. We should build up our nation. We should seek to promote things that are right and decry things that are evil. We should do those things. But we need to make sure that we remember that our true longing is for our homeland, our true homeland, which is already here, but not yet fully here. One of the values of the kingdom is loving our neighbor. And we also seek the welfare of other people and other nations because that's our kingdom value. We love the Lord with God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourself. Father Rob Patterson, who's a, an Anglican priest in California and a friend of mine, recently wrote a pastoral letter to his congregation regarding the recent shootings. And he said, As followers of Jesus, however, our hearts are not only moved to obey the good will of God, but we are also moved to participate in God's renewing activity in the world. And this means not only proclaiming the good news of Jesus, but also decrying the evil in opposition to that good news. To establish good involves disestablishing evil. And that's something that we can all do. We can establish good and disestablish evil by our own behavior, by our own actions in this world, by staying connected to Jesus, and being his image bearers among people who don't know him. Every time we decry evil or pray for an enemy or create something beautiful, we are bringing a little more of God's kingdom into the darkness of this world. It's easy to be disheartened and discouraged when we face the evil of a mass shooting or human trafficking or racism. But don't worry, the sky isn't falling. And we've read the book, and we know who wins in the end. And each and every day we get to participate in those victories. Day by day, step by step, heart by heart, soul by soul. And so I'll close with Jesus' words 
in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of John. Verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, in you we live and move and have our being. We thank you that you have rescued us out of this world, out of the kingdom of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of your glorious light. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful representatives of your kingdom in this world. We pray that you would help us as we seek the welfare of our city and the welfare of our nation. Help us to build up the good things and to decry evil when we see it. Help us to share your gospel and spread the message and the reign of your kingdom to the people that we know and the people that we meet. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom would continue to expand as you have promised that it will. And we look forward to that day when we will gather around your throne and worship with angels and archangels in all the company of heaven, people from every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation. Be glorified, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.